What if the question wasn't, is healthcare a right, but how much healthcare is a right? A lot of people would say, you can't put a price on your health. It, it doesn't matter how much it is. But the reality is, in a world where we have a finite set of resources, you have to wrestle with that question. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at the ongoing dysfunction in the U.S. healthcare system and COVID's role in highlighting that dysfunction. This month marks three years since the country began the lockdown process. President Biden is expected to declare the national and public health emergencies over in May. Our guest is Catherine Baker, the outgoing dean of the Harris School of Public Policy and a leading scholar in the economic analysis of healthcare policy, specifically the effectiveness of public and private health insurance. She serves on the panel of health advisors for the Congressional Budget Office and was a member of the Council of Economic Advisors in the second Bush administration, where she played a leading role in the development of health policy. Kate Baker, welcome back to The Pie. Thank you so much. And congratulations on uh, your very exciting new role as provost at the University of Chicago. Aw, thank you very much. I am thrilled about the opportunity. It is a big new job. Enormous, I would say. Um, I'm curious, are you still going to be doing research or I assume this new role will probably prompt you to, to leave economic studies behind, for, at least for a while? I'm going to try to stay engaged with health policy because I still very much care about these issues and hope that I can uh, continue to contribute. But I have to admit that my research portfolio will be even smaller going forward. <laughs> Understandable, for sure. All right. Well, you have been a, a somewhat regular guest on this show. Uh, we first talked back in the early days of the pandemic about your research into super spreaders, what kinds of businesses uh, pose the biggest risk for spreading COVID. We've also talked to you about the mechanics of pricing a vaccine. We've looked at your previous research on the kind of the dynamics that shape health insurance coverage here in the U.S., so now it is March 2023. We've had three years to get a very up close, very public look at the healthcare system here. Did those three years make that system on balance better or worse? One thing the pandemic laid bare was the challenges in access to healthcare and the disparities in availability of insurance and quality of care that have always been there but became much more salient and much more important during the pandemic. I think we saw all of the problems around getting your insurance through your job at a time when a public health crisis also led to a lot of unemployment, for example. And we saw huge disparities in access to and take up of vaccines and availability of treatments. So we know these issues are really important and that the U.S. healthcare system leaves a lot to be desired. Well, talk us through what you think are maybe the two, three biggest lessons to take away from, from watching how the healthcare system worked or didn't over the span of the pandemic. I think we learned a lot about the importance of access to care through alternative channels like telemedicine. For example, Zoom and 
video conferencing have been around forever. And they just weren't used very much in healthcare, in part because patients weren't comfortable with it, in part because physicians weren't comfortable with it, in part because it wasn't reimbursed. And so the pandemic caused public policy to change in reimbursing providers for telemedicine visits and then opened up that access channel in a way that I hope we can continue to take advantage of. Uh, That said, there are also takeaways about the failures of the U.S. safety net and the failures of our insurance system to provide continuity of care and access to care, particularly in underserved geographies and in underserved populations. And what about, I I feel like the the picture that the American public got of, of our healthcare system was one of severe lack of capacity in a crisis like this, th- there weren't enough beds. There wasn't enough. There weren't enough ventilators. And you know, clearly, there have been lessons learned out of that. But what do you say to those who feel like the picture was really that uh, we we did not do well? I think there's no question that we didn't do well on lots of important dimensions. Being prepared for a pandemic of this magnitude is obviously really challenging. This was an off the charts public health crisis. But that said, I think we learned a lot about the gaps in our system for um, availability of PPE, personal protective equipment, the ability to let providers go to where they were most needed to practice across state lines or to practice at the top of their licenses, the capacity we have for an emergency surge of need for care. I hope that we take some lessons from that that make us a little better prepared. The pandemic clearly revealed a lot of shortcomings in our system. So that, I think, uh, leads us into talking about your latest research on the state of health insurance in the U.S. This is such a long-running issue that, honestly, it's kind of hard to imagine it will ever be solved. Um, But first, uh, I wonder, can you walk us through how the U.S. compares to other industrialized nations when it comes to how much of the population has health insurance and how that's changed over the last several decades. Give us kind of the 30,000-foot view of where we are. The U.S. leaves a much greater share of its population uninsured than most other developed countries. And that's changed a lot in other countries over time through public policy initiatives, through changes in public insurance provision. Other countries have driven their share of the population uninsured, often close to zero. We haven't seen that kind of improvement in the U.S., although after the the ACA or Obamacare, millions more people gained insurance through Medicaid expansions, through the chance to enroll in subsidized insurance, through health insurance exchanges or marketplaces, through being able to stay on their parents' plans. I think that was the aspect of Obamacare that made the biggest change in our healthcare system was those avenues to getting more people insured. But that still leaves millions of people in the U.S. uninsured. So a lot of the uh, people who remain uninsured in the U.S. are low-income people living in states that did not choose to expand their Medicaid programs. Uh, A lot are undocumented residents of the U.S. who are not eligible for a lot of those public insurance programs. But a huge share of the uninsured in the U.S. are actually eligible for free or very low-cost insurance and aren't enrolled in it. So that highlights one of the major challenges of our system. It's not just about affordability. 
It's about the complexity required to take up those benefits and the lack of good information and streamlined processes that would let people take up all the benefits to which they're entitled. Let's explore that a little bit because one big element of your research is is what you call a market failures approach that has prevented universal coverage. Um, You know, as a cynic, I would argue that a lot of the reason that we don't have universal coverage is because we've allowed the profit motive to come into the healthcare system. It is market-based healthcare. Um, So can you explain a little bit about the market failures idea? Well, first of all, I want to push back a little bit on the notion that profits in medicine are bad. I think the reason we have the uh, remarkable advances in healthcare and medicine that we do is because of innovation and entrepreneurship that's driven by the possibility of profits. And the advances in medicine that our system generates are then uh, available to lots of people in other countries as well. So in some ways, we are cross-subsidizing innovation that benefits the world. And I see that subsidy in my healthcare bills. <laughs> yeah, yes, and you have great medicine available to you that wasn't available 10 years ago. So, so there's a, a real True. trade-off there. And I don't say that to suggest that our system is functioning well and that incentives are aligned and that we're always getting high-value care. But I, yeah. I wouldn't... Um, myself want a system in which there was no profitability in healthcare innovation because then we we wouldn't get as much innovation as we have now and I think there are a lot of valuable innovations that we want to be sure whatever system we design incentivizes so I want to start with that premise fair point yeah that's my view and that's not everyone's view so I want to be explicit about that So why do we have so many uninsured people in the U.S. and why is healthcare so expensive and what's driving the fact that we spend so much more on healthcare than lots of other countries? Well, nobody could reasonably argue that the U.S. healthcare system is a perfectly competitive market. In a perfectly competitive market, Prices are driven down to equal marginal cost because you have competition among the people who are providing the care and you have competition among the people who are purchasing the care and everything operates efficiently and with perfect information and there's a lot of consumer surplus and producer surplus. Um, That is not what healthcare looks like for lots and lots of reasons. We have very few parts of the country where there is real competition among lots of different insurers. We have lots of parts of the system where there's a sole source provider or a single purchaser. And this does not make for efficient pricing that squeezes prices in a way that promotes the highest value care for everyone. So that is just not what our world looks like. There's even more complexity when you think about the uh, availability of information that would inform good decision making by patients and their doctors, that would inform efficient pricing of health insurance and healthcare delivery. With that being the case, economists naturally go to saying, okay, how do we fix those market failures? How do we address those market failures? That must be the reason that we're spending more than we need to on healthcare and that too few people are insured. Well, fixing those market failures is is surely better than not, 
but approaching the problem of increasing uh, the share of the population that's insured by patching an incredibly dysfunctional system <laughs> risks perpetuating a lot of that dysfunction and not addressing the fundamental problems. The approach of just trying to address classic market failures is bound to be not only insufficient, but potentially inefficient. Isn't one of the big issues also, and I remember this vividly from the debates over the ACA, that because people don't want change or disruption in how they currently experience healthcare, it's incredibly difficult to implement any change at all. It, you know, it was at that point, it was the I want to keep my doctor debate, right? And people have a hard time imagining something new that could be better than what they have. It's just easier to live with it, even if it means you might end up owing huge sums of money for your care. Well, you're pointing to some of the, um, real challenges with the way we pay for healthcare and provide healthcare. So much of the cost that you might bear downstream if you get an expensive illness are impossible to see ahead of time. Yeah. It is very hard to know when you have an insurance product how good it really is until you're sick and you need it. <laughs> and so part of it, I think, is the lack of transparency in what insurance really covers now and in what you get when you pay for care from different providers. People don't have the information they need to be able to see the cost of the current system and potentially the benefits of an alternative. But I think there's more to it than that in that disrupting the system would generate real transition costs. Right now, all the risk pooling that we have in the private market is because employers' entire employee population pool gets covered in the same insurance family of plans. And so it's, a it's the mechanism we rely on to pool risk for a huge swath of the population. And risk pooling is the fundamental purpose of insurance. Of course, you want to use your insurance to get access to care. But the reason insurance is so important is that it mitigates the enormous financial consequence of potentially needing expensive health care. It reallocates resources from the lucky people who remain healthy to the less lucky people who fall ill. And that kind of risk pooling is the hallmark of an insurance system that's working. So destroying those risk pools that we currently have through employer plans would be incredibly disruptive, and we better have a good plan for the transition to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks, that they don't um, lose access to insurance at a time when they need it most, and that we don't end up bankrupting insurers who are supposed to be paying for the care that people need such that there's no insurance for them anymore. When we talk about this debate over health care, um, your research frames it in pretty stark terms uh, that the debate has been, is health care a right? Right. This is, this is the question that has come up over and over and over again. You talk about how the concept that would pr potentially prompt greater change is if that question then becomes how much healthcare is a right. First of all, how do we get to change that question? And then 
What would that mean in terms of setting just a baseline for every citizen in this country? The question, is healthcare a right, presupposes that healthcare is one thing, that you either have it or you don't. But of course, healthcare is a continuum of things. Mm. If everybody were entitled to all of the healthcare that he or she might possibly get, funded with public dollars, regardless of how much that healthcare changed their health outcomes, that would be more than 100% of GDP. If we don't wrestle with the question of how much healthcare we want to cover, there's no way we'll have enough money to cover it because there is an infinite amount of healthcare in the world. So the much better question is how much healthcare is a right? And once we engage with that in the public discourse in a more serious way, we can then make sure we have the financing available to pay for that care. Right now, we're living in a world where healthcare is rationed in a very opaque, hidden way. The ugly part of forcing people to think about how much healthcare is a right is that it lays bare the fact that some people who have the ability to purchase additional healthcare are going to have more healthcare than others. And that is a very ethically fraught place to be. But if you ignore that reality of finite resources, then you can't make sure that everyone has access to the high value care that is a public policy priority for a lot of people. But I think what the basic problem is that you're getting at here is that it's very hard for people to agree on what is fundamental in healthcare, right? I mean, if, if I have cancer that might benefit from a treatment that's hundreds of thousands of dollars, I certainly think that's fundamental, don't I? How, how do you resolve that problem without, as you've been talking about, bankrupting whatever system you've established? This is the crucial question. And I want to start off by saying that high-value healthcare does not mean inexpensive healthcare. But that gets very quickly to the dilemma that you're posing that for any given person, an extra day of life is incredibly precious. Yeah. And it is a, a real ethical dilemma to say, how much should public programs pay to buy somebody one more day of life. And a lot of people would say, you can't put a price on your health. It, it doesn't matter how much it is. But the reality is, in a world where we have a finite set of resources, you have to wrestle with that question. We can't get away from having the ethically laden discussion about how much we can afford with public dollars. So somebody has to decide what things is the public program going to cover and what things is it not going to cover. Again, we are living in a world right now where healthcare is rationed, and it's rationed in such a way that there are millions of uninsured people and there are people going without basic care that as a society, we might think there ought to be the resources for. And if we want to make sure that we have those resources, then we have to wrestle with saying, there are some things that public insurance is simply not going to cover. Let's say for the sake of argument, and I think it's probably pretty likely, uh, that, that we will not have 
or at least are still very far away from changing the system, that it stays predominantly employer-based, that it stays with private insurance, that there's really no sign of agreement on a baseline for coverage. Given that, how could things change for the better within those constraints? First of all, I agree with your fundamental premise that wholesale reform of the U.S. system is likely not happening right now. (laughs) So what changes could be made that would improve insurance coverage, improve value? There are lots of states experimenting with streamlined enrollment processes for their public programs. For example, we knew a lot about people's income and eligibility criteria for Medicaid from other public programs. There's information from food stamps or income assistance or housing assistance Mm. where you can make a pretty good guess about whether somebody is eligible for Medicaid or not. Some states are experimenting with automatic enrollment based on that information or pre-populating forms so that all you have to do is check a box to say, yes, this is correct and I would like to take up those benefits. So eliminating some of those barriers would make it easier for people to take advantage of benefits to which they are already eligible. And then, of course, there are lots of choices that both the federal government and the states make about who's eligible in the first place. And we know that if you look at the health insurance exchanges or marketplaces created by the ACA, the people most likely to take advantage of those policies are ones who are fully subsidized. So there are decisions to be made about the affordability of insurance, but even holding that fixed, just streamlining the process could go a long way towards increasing take-up and reducing churn. So let me bring this back around to the COVID three-year anniversary and ask, given all this, given your research, given that you obviously had a front seat, as we all did, to what happened, um, and the response to it by the U.S. healthcare system, by the U.S. government. What, if anything, did it teach us about whether A, change is needed, and B, change is possible? I think we learned that in a time of crisis, people can come together to make changes much more quickly than we thought, and for the system to rise to the occasion as much as possible. We saw, of course, Herculean efforts by providers and the healthcare system to deal with a catastrophic surge in need. We saw state policy and federal policy adjust in terms of uh, covering care that wouldn't normally be covered, in terms of relaxing restrictions on practice patterns, in terms of changing reimbursement. And then, of course, the incredible achievement of the availability of vaccines in such a short period. I think there was a great deal to admire in the responses of all sorts of people in the system and the system itself to some degree. But I don't think we can take away from this that our system is well-designed and everything functioned well and that we responded as well as possible to this unprecedented challenge. I think we learned a lot about how the shortcomings in our current system created dire health consequences during the pandemic. The availability of beds, the access to care, the incidence of the disease, because people were exposed in very different ways. I think this um, 
made very salient for a while the need to reform our healthcare system. I worry a little bit that that salience won't get converted to real reform efforts. Catherine Baker, Dean of the Harris School of Public Policy and incoming provost for the University of Chicago. It's been so great to have you on the show over these past few years. Really appreciate it and best of luck in your new position. Many thanks and I hope I'll still get to do this. Oh, we'd love to have you back anytime. Thank you. Thank you. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.